must be like the wolf pack, not like six pack. Teamwork. Yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of There's No I in Podcast, a podcast about teams, a podcast about being in teams, a podcast about leading teams, and a podcast about getting the most out of your team, whatever team you are in. My name is Mark Johnson. I'm a performance maker and a performance teacher, and I am joined in my team, as always, by head of sport and co-curricular at our shared workplace, uh, Sean Gallagher. Hello, Sean. Hello, Mark. How's it going? I'm I'm good. I'm feeling uh, like I haven't been behind a microphone in far too long i know it does it does feel strange but um i think every good podcast needs a slight break don't they a well-earned break now and again yeah and we have been we've been working very hard obviously we talk about our shared workplace quite a lot it is incredible to me from the time i've been a teacher just how much the holidays land like just how much kind of stored uh, energy and tension gets released in those first couple of weeks of holiday and I, I'm incapable of doing anything. I completely crash. Absolutely. Although I always feel embarrassed when I speak to other normal people <laughs> in jobs when I say I'm on my summer break now for seven weeks. So I don't think our audience will be too um, feeling too sorry for, for us being incapable of uh, doing anything for a couple of weeks but um no it's good and is that the reason sean why you're maintaining your exercise group trying to yeah exactly we do have our hit weekly saturday sessions continuing uh and i'm trying to be active so i i'm in sort of athlete mode at the moment where i don't have to do anything i have no responsibilities except for get off my ass and go and do something so i feel like a an athlete you know who's getting paid to work out well that's a pro that's appropriate because we are they actually happened the 2020 tokyo olympics have actually begun thought it wasn't going to happen right up until that very last minute so the opening ceremony happened it's it really felt touch and go <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you know, the Olympics have started when the uh, Russian Olympic Committee play Tchaikovsky instead of their actual national yeah, anthem to know that we, we've got going. I, I found that such a strange. I was trying to work out the context of the of that ban so we can compete. Our athletes can compete, but we can't call ourselves Russia and we can't use our national anthem. Very, very strange. I, I don't know who's getting punished there, but I, I mean, it's, it's great that the athletes are able to compete. But wasn't it the athletes doping in the first place? I, I'm baffled. They also get to have the colours of their nation on the ROC sort of badge um, on all their stash. I mean, so they wouldn't be the, they wouldn't be the only people to have red, white, and blue on their <laughs> on their stuff, though. No, true, but it does look like their flag, to be honest. But um, yeah, it's it is a strange one. I think they've they've got away with it, to be honest. Um, if I'm going to be that controversial, yeah, especially when you look at the medal hall and they're sort of third or fourth at the moment. I I don't think it is right, to be honest. Um, There's been some interesting developments in terms of competitiveness over this year, really, in athletics. And then at the same time, it feels like this has been the, not just the Olympics, but the summer of sport mental health is an, is an interesting one as well. When you think about the, I, I can't remember if we talked about it in the last one, about Naomi Osaka stepping away from press and then the conversations that have been had around 
the impact that that's had on her competing in the Olympics and Simone Biles stepping away for health reasons. It's been it's been quite an up and down contest. Absolutely. Yeah. Going into the games um, has been a bit of a weird one for sure. I've I actually just watched the documentary. Uh, I think there's a three part documentary about uh, Naomi Osaka, which was obviously filmed prior to, mm. you know, her coming out and saying that she wasn't going to compete in certain events Um and that yeah, situation was a is a difficult one for her. And then we had I'm probably going to do a really bad job of pronouncing it, but Sharkari Richardson mm. was not allowed to compete due to uh, a positive test for doping of um, weed, basically of cannabis, which is a really odd one because you know it's sort of legalized in lots of states uh, in the US now, and they changed the rules on it in the NFL. Uh, so it's no longer it's no longer tested for in the NFL. Absolutely, and I mean we've got CBD oils, you know, coming out the wazoo, yeah. um, as I think you like to say sometimes, Mark. Which I think have some very very high profile supporters of for its impact in oh in ath- athletes. athletes, yeah, yeah are creating their own brands. Yeah, there's a rugby, uh, there's two rugby guys. I forget their names right now, but. Um, they they have their own CBD brand and stuff, so that was that was a bit of a tricky one because I think she would have been a favorite as well uh, if she if she was part of the games. Mm. Um, and like you said, Simone Biles has just uh, you know said she's not well didn't compete um, in that team event and now uh, doesn't look like she's going to compete in the individual. Um, it's a really tricky one for me because I think both of us working with young people understand the real sort of threat of kind of mental health yeah. and like the negative impact it can have. However, at the same time as a podcast, you know, that is uh, is called There's No I in, in podcast, a play on There's No I in team. It's a difficult one for her to not compete with her teammates, mm. even if she wasn't feeling 100%. It's a really tough one. Uh, I think people are going to sit on, 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 on two yeah. sides of this uh, because you know that's that silver could have been a gold. Yeah. You know, thematically, it's something that we've we've covered in a couple of different episodes. I think about anytime we start to approach this conversation about elite performance, and we've had that conversation with a bunch of even Olympic and Paralympic coaches and uh, athletes and I think about Michael Moore and the conversations we were having about his development of elite players from a young age that balance and responsibility to make sure that you are able to create elite training where it's not at the expense of mental health or at the expense of well-being and I think about a clip that I was I I was I was thrown up and it was a uh, a judo competitor and they were getting hyped up by their coach beforehand and the coach grabs oh, them the slap and the shakes slap them the and ground. slaps them both yeah. twice on the face and yeah. i'm thinking there's nothing about that that i by reflex think is good but also there's nothing about it that suggests it's not agreed. There's nothing about it that that suggests it doesn't. It's not doing the job of creating that performance, and that is. And they came out and said that, yeah. didn't they? They came out and said, "I, I need yeah. this to wake me and, up," which is interesting. And that's and that's that's fascinating for me. And I hope that the more we talk to people who deal in performance 
at an elite level, the more we can kind of unpick and uncover some of the subtleties of that because we both know that to push someone to be better requires acts and actions that another that an, that a spectator might see as too much yeah absolutely i mean like you know these guys have been training for for four years you know if not the last 15 years 10 years of of getting to to, to those olympics um and that coach athlete relationship is absolutely key. Uh, if we look at Adam Peaty, who's just an absolute beast in the pool uh, and has smashed it now, I don't think he's lost a final since like 2016 mm. and kind of like not just the Olympics, just, you know, in other competitions, I think like Worlds and, and things like that. Um, he's just an absolute beast. And uh, I was listening to a podcast with his coach on there, Mel Marshall. And, you know, she took a group of them away to... I could be wrong with the country. I want to say Zambia or Tanzania, like one of those countries anyway, on the, there was like 12 of them. And uh, she just wanted to like push them. You know, she wanted them to be in a different environment. She wanted things to not be perfect. You know, they, they turned up to breakfast, dinner, the dinner was different than what they thought they were getting. There's cutlery wasn't there. It was, you know, they mm. wanted to get into the pool, the pool, they thought they'd get early morning pool sessions. The pool didn't open till 10.30. That's quite late for swimmers with the rest of their kind of training schedule and their day. But what she wanted them to have is that kind of resilience. Grit. Yeah, that grit. That gri <laughs> yeah exactly. That grit, grit and resilience. You know, there was another story. I can't remember the, um, I think it might have been Thorpe, Thorpe's coach who would damage his goggles, basically, before like races so that you know they weren't perfect and that he would only realize it sort of at the race time and then have to deal with that situation so it was just there were there were no variables that can get in the way of performance i mean adam peter was talking about morning finals like morning mm. swims um in these olympics that like isn't good for swimmers. I don't know why it's not good. I mean, I don't Cramps like early after mornings. breakfast. I don't know. <laughs> I always get yeah. told not to swim after you've eaten. No, that yeah, true. I mean, I, maybe they just don't like early mornings like me. But he kept saying about like these morning morning swims and stuff. But he dealt with it. You know, he he, he dealt with it. So they might not have known they were going to be morning swims, and then bang, off you go. Um, and just the mental kind of capacity that they're having to compete at a really high level, especially in the pool. The pool seems like not just GB, but just in general, it seems like really quick times mm. are, are being had and like a really high level of competition. Which I find incredible, by the way, because when when we were in the Michael Phelps era of swimming, like it felt like we were at a, well, this is, this is the peak. This is as good as we're likely to get. Well, apparently PT's final i think was the quickest as mm. in like that all of those all of those finalists were quicker than you know ever before it was like the quickest yeah. final so something along Which those lines insane. that they were they were all the quickest swimmers. the same with the tennis as well like I, I thought we were in a world where federer had basically shown us what tennis as good as it can be is and now you've got Djokovic matching and yeah it's incredible it's incredible what what humans are managing to do not even setting aside Simone Biles up until the Olympics what she's been doing this year as well yeah but the, just to finish off that point though in terms of what what they are doing they're doing it in empty swimming arenas mm. like they're doing it with no extrinsic motivation 
So everything is coming intrinsically. They're doing it. Obviously, they are still doing it for the nation and for their families and stuff. But on the day when they jump into that pool... Everything is about that internal psychological drive. Absolutely. Because, you know, how what's going to make you feel more motivated? If you're, if you're a high performer, obviously, some people can crumble under pressure. But if you walk into a swimming like arena and there are 5,000 people all yeah. cheering and all going absolutely crazy. Like How adrenaline not... is real. <laughs> adrenaline. Yeah, adrenaline is real, right? And like that, as I said, it can have the opposite effect and you can crumble, but let's just assume in the most part that high achieving athletes are used to this and it's part and it's and part parcel. of their performance yeah it's part of their built performance, into how right? they do their, their their best work yeah i mean you've got the gb7s team who i believe went two games without conceding a try then i think they lost to fiji who are like number one in the world in sevens and then they were 21 down against the us at half time and turned it around and won that game in the second half with no one in the crowd, like no one cheering them on, just them as a yeah, team. Them deciding what do we need to do to win, and how do we how do we bring ourselves to that point? Yeah, so it's it's a really interesting one to to look at your external and and sort of internal kind of or intrinsic kind of motivations for you. If we just now say take it down to our audience and to ourselves, yeah. and not look at Olympic athletes, that's that's at the highest. Well, if level. we look at my my morning my morning run, that up until last week I was finishing early because in my head, when I got to the corner before a coffee stand, like my body went, yeah, we're done. And so I stopped. Yeah. So now I've had to add extra distance onto the beginning because I know that as soon as I turn that corner, my body's going to go, yeah, we're done. I mean, coffee is all powerful, to be fair. It's very hard to go past the coffee store, store that is your is your favorite and is your local. It's one of my weaknesses. Yeah, indeed. So we've suggested a bunch of different things that we're thinking about the Olympics. And it feels it feels a little bit silly when we do have the perspectives of a whole bunch of people that have been involved in actual Olympics and Paralympic Games, who've who've represented them their events nationally, internationally, at an elite level. So what we've thought we're going to do is, re while the Olympics are going on and the Paralympics are, are going on, we're going to replay some of those. For a little bit of context, so you can listen to some of the the ideas that came out when we talked to Rob Richardson, who was a sitting volleyball player at uh, 2012, when we talked to Ashley Trodden, when we talked to some of the other people that have competed at the highest level in their events. So the next few are likely to be reposts, and they're probably going to be quite sport and athletics focused, but like you don't need to hear from us about what it takes to be an Olympic athlete when we have the luxury of letting you hear what Olympic athletes have to say about what it means to yeah. be an Olympic athlete. And coaches. And coaches. Uh, so uh, I think today, let's kick off with uh, Rob Richardson. Rob was uh, competed for Team GB in the sitting volleyball at the 2012 uh, Paralympic Games. And it was uh, it was such a great chat. And I'm really, really excited for people who might not have gone back to listen to it, to listen to it again. So without further delay, on your marks, get set, Rob Richardson. Team. Yes. 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 
So I am uh, staggered and hugely honoured to be uh, welcoming onto the podcast uh, Rob Richardson. Rob, uh, just to give a little bit of background, when we reposted the Ashley episode, uh, we we all of a sudden on Twitter started started. Uh, noticing that Ashley was getting trolled uh, about his about his coaching style um, <laughs> by uh, some of his uh, some of his former teammates and uh, I couldn't let that pass without at least inviting them on so I am I, I'm so happy to have Rob Richardson on Rob is a Paralympian he was captain of the GB sitting volleyball team uh, and uh, goes way back with Ashley but has done uh, so much so much more than that we're very excited to be chatting to you. Hello, Rob. Hey, um, pleased to be here. And yeah, funny way of getting here, but yeah, it's uh, good to be here. Uh, honestly, I, I loved it because uh, Sean, you go way back with Ashley. Exactly, I do indeed. And and you've, I'm sure, teased him, ribbed him in the past. Uh, <laughs> yes, very much so, yeah. So, no. so to see it's coming from all directions was uh, <laughs> was super fun. Um, yeah, so that was, a, that was a brief intro and completely focused on someone who wasn't you. So perhaps you might want to just tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, your journey, how you got to where you are. Yeah, so I'm a Paralympic athlete. So um, I guess first bit to cover off is I'm an amputee, uh, missing uh, a bit of my right leg. Uh, just a scratch, I think they term it in Monty Python <laughs> language. Um, so, so yeah, so um, kind of eligible for for the Paralympics. Um, went tried out, um, gosh, um, over a decade ago and more. Um, and yeah, got kind of recruited into into volleyball, which was just kind of starting out. And then fast forward from there, and that was back in like two thousand five. Fast forward from there to to twenty twelve. And uh, yeah, me, Ashley, and all the other guys out there in front of 8,000 people, uh, union flags ago. And yeah, it's been an amazing journey, almost 100 caps, world championships, European championships. And um, yeah, it's been, it was a massive journey because we were kind of just a group of athletes with no volleyball experience thrown together. And just the only common thing was that we were missing a bit of our body. And then you kind of go from there and get taught volleyball by all these amazing coaches who love the, the idea of going to the Paralympic Games. So we're really kind of honoured with that. And then it's that kind of switch from going, oh, this is all great. And actually you start trying to want to win matches. Yeah. Um, that was our, our biggest challenge, I think. Um, so yeah, that was, that was me. And I kind of competed up and still competing now in seeing volleyball. I took three years out of the sport and went and tried a winter sport for uh, a little while, which was interesting. I did um, skeleton. Slightly different. <laughs> yeah, it is slightly different. Like the worst thing that can happen to you on a volleyball court is you get hit by a, a light ball. Yeah. Um, it was a bit different going down at 90 miles an hour head first. But, you know, it was interesting just to see how other sports run and like mm. go from a team sport to an individual sport. So, yeah, that's that's me. Amazing. Wow. So were you were you a competitive sports person uh, before the amputation or before you kind of got picked up for volleyball? Yeah, yeah. So I, I'd kind of I'd played like cricket up until, and played in sort of county um, up to under 13s mm. and stuff like that. And then my leg kind of started to give way on me. I was just, I was mad keen on sport. Like my, 
my dad was a professional cricketer. My two uncles, they played cricket and uh, both played for England. So it was like this massively sporty family. And in, a, in any other kind of generation, I, I would have been the kind of the disabled kid who didn't get to do anything with their life. Yeah. In, the, in the world we live in now, it's like, oh, it's an opportunity. Um, so yeah, it was pretty cool. And I think, and you can forgive me if I'm kind of clumsily overstating it, but with the the particular opportunity that 2012 presented that if we didn't have an olympics coming up perhaps the people wouldn't be looking for sports people so yeah. i mean in, i'm interested in 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 kind of that scouting process as well how how did they how did how did you get scouted yeah so it was i mean it, it's it's nuts really i um, um you probably remember it so when um, London got the nod to host the games and Trafalgar Square went nuts and all that. <laughs> yeah. And I was sitting in this rubbish office doing my first job out of uni. And uh, one of the guys was like, you should get involved in that. You could do that. Knowing that I was pretty sporty and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And I was like, yeah, so, it was just so weird. I sent an email that day to the Paralympic Association basically saying, hi there, I'm missing a leg. I'd love to get involved in Paralympic sport. Just like that email that everyone sends, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, they came back to me and didn't seem to think it was a weird email to receive. Um, and they basically, they hosted all over the country, these different kind of recruitment days uh, and people, the whole different range of disabilities and, and, and being recruited into different sports because it, it just changed the mindset yeah. overnight about kind of what this opportunity was. Now for me, like, Ashley wanting to go and play, um, as an example, go and play volleyball at the Olympics for Great Britain. He's up against how many thousands of athletes. Now, me to go and play volleyball in the Paralympic Games was slightly, I'm up against maybe 100 athletes. So already I quite like my odds on the whole thing. <laughs> You've done the yeah. math. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so I try, I would, like the recruitment day, you try out all different kinds of sports. So from rowing to volleyball to athletics to, to all different kinds of things. And like, as I said, I kind of, my background was with sort of cricket and football and things like that. So team sports was yeah. always kind of what I was drawn to. I, I didn't really see the point in me going to wheelchair rugby or wheelchair basketball. I'm not a, a wheelchair user that felt kind of counterintuitive yeah. to me. Um, and so, yeah, volleyball seemed like, the, the the ideal one. I think I played volleyball once on a beach in Australia as a way to try and meet girls, and that that was my only nice. That, I mean, that immediately made me captain. Yeah, uh, <laughs> a massive experience. Yeah, that was a prerequisite needed. I can imagine. Excellent. I can imagine uh, being a Paralympic athlete is pretty good at getting girls as well. Though. Yeah, it must be. <laughs> no. <laughs> You've dispelled that myth. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was just going to say because obviously, you know, I want to kind of stay stay slightly more on the on the volleyball. But obviously, you you did say you've moved into skeleton. Skeleton is that correct? Yeah. 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 So obviously, you said that is a single kind of uh, you know athlete sport. So it did where you said you were always keen on the team sport, and that's kind of where your background was. Was it a conscious decision to just move into a different sport to try it out, or was there that kind of can I do this by myself without people sort of around me in that team element was, was there that in the mindset or yeah it, no it really was it was um I don't know I, I, as kind of the volleyball journey was going on especially around 2012 I remember just being kind of 
getting really into individual sports and like suffering. Uh, mm. I know it sounds really weird, but like watching something like the Tour de France or triathlon, seeing people really kind of, and like Andy Murray is one of my absolute sporting heroes. Yeah. And it's just like people who can put themselves through it. And um, while skeleton is not necessarily that in terms of endurance, it is, it's about a mindset and kind of a, a level of focus. And I just, I just I thought it sounded fascinating. Um, and so, yeah, they, uh, the, um, they, it's kind of invited me to go and try out the sport. Um, so I went out to Austria and you go and you take your first runs down. They're quite cool. You do your first run and they have a car at the bottom there, picks you up, drives you straight back up and you go straight again off the top. (laughs) And And the idea, it sounds weird, but the idea is that your second run can't be as bad as your first run. And so, like it says, like the amount of people that do their first run, they're like, yeah, shake hands with everyone, thank you very much, I've had a lovely time, and off they go. Yeah. And you just, like, any second time is going to be better, and yeah, it's um, it's and, just and amazing. I, I can imagine if you after that first one, you realise just how insane an event uh, an event it is, and if you if you were to think twice about it, you'd probably never do it again. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely insane. Um, but I tell you what, I mean, it's it's, it's a proper rush, but. Like, I mean, I probably did 30 runs a season mm. and, each, and, each, and each run is about a minute. So when you think about it in terms of what your actual sort of on, on, your, on the pitch or whatever you yeah, call yeah. it, 30 minutes in a the, year, it's nothing. The, the Gladwell 10,000 hours is probably quite tough to uh, yeah, get to. Yeah, I, I guarantee <laughs> you, Lizzie Arnold, pick whoever you want. No one's done 10,000 hours, it's sliding. Yeah. Now, um... Sean, yeah, Sean rightly pointed out it's a fairly individual event, but I can imagine there's quite a large team around you as far as as far as coaching and similar events goes. Do you feel part of a team when you're when you're competing in that event? Yes and no. I think you when you're off the ice and stuff, but there is that mindset as soon as you kind of step on. Um, and I, not just me, as soon as you're kind of there at the venue and you're switched on and stuff, it is, it is all about you and your performance. And I think that was the bit that I said I was kind of curious about, but I, I found it, um, yeah, it was, it was much more draining as an individual athlete. athlete. Like, I think in a team environment, you're, you're picking up energy from the people around you, whereas in this environment, everyone's energy is focused on to you. Um, so it is, yeah, it's, um, I'm not sure I found it as enjoyable, but equally I, I did the volleyball for such a long time. And, yeah. um, I guess by having those 10,000 hours, the game came so easy to me. Um, and whereas in the skeleton, I was the new kid and, and actually it was kind of having to learn it, which is tiring anyway. I, yeah, I, I imagine. So just, just talking about where you've done the 10,000 hours and you've kind of, it becomes easy to you. I imagine then you, you definitely advocate the fact, especially maybe for some younger listeners or even just people that, you know, like you said, you picked up a sport a couple of years ago, someone ju- that just wants to learn something new that you, you can't beat the practice of it. You can't beat putting in the hours into that thing. And eventually over time, you will get pretty decent at it. Yeah. Uh, without, without a shadow of doubt. I mean, everyone, always looked at me as kind of this guy when, cause like me and Ashley were there for a few years before the rest of the team joined. Like the majority of the team that went to 2012 didn't really start playing until 2009. 
I've been playing for years by then. So yeah. they all join and think that the game comes easy. But like you say, I've kind of I've been through that that period where you're having to learn and like in, in sitting volleyball, obviously you're kind of sat on the floor. And when you're missing limbs and stuff, every single person will sit differently and you have mm. an optimal sort of position to fold your leg and your not so good leg away or whatever. So you have to kind of I was given I had the time to to learn with it. But I do kind of always remember that there was like this penny dropped kind of moment with with the game when things that felt complicated and challenging just become sort of second nature. And the interesting thing with the sitting volleyball is versus sort of, uh, standing volleyball is in standing volleyball you like if you're moving to the ball you just move you don't have to think about it mm-hmm. because you and the same in football or whatever you kind of just gravitate towards the ball you don't think about oh I'm going to move this leg and then this leg whereas in sitting volleyball we're all sat on the floor and like that way of moving is is not it's not normal it's not, yeah. <laughs> so you've got hands on the floor you're shuffling around and all this kind of stuff and that's another thing that you have to learn and and kind of get your head around. And I think that was the hardest thing from a coaching perspective, because they can teach you how to play volleyball. They can't teach you how to how to move because it's it's quite personal, but but also it's just kind of you have to work what's best for you. And I'm sure and I'm sure I know you've done sort of a lot of coaching in schools and and uh, working with lots of groups as well. And I'm sure they all say to you how alien it is and, and how strange it is for them if they're able-bodied to be still on the floor trying to move around to the ball and like how taxing it is on the upper body and stuff like that I mean really really difficult sport yeah so we um uh, when I do the school visits and stuff like that when it kind of it's part of the warm-up and get them all sat on the floor uh, and they're all like uh, kind of all like standing around as I'm there without on the floor and like, all right you guys will sit down to <laughs> play a game of tag um, and so literally a full, full volleyball court or sometimes just kind of the, the, the hall or whatever we're in. And I have to tag all, all of the kids. So there's like 30 or 40 of them. <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we do that and they're, they're all absolutely knackered at the end of it. And I'm like, well, we've pretty much done that for a minute. So that's <laughs> maybe two, three, four points in, in, in volleyball. Um, and we, we had matches that were like two hours, 10 minutes um jesus so so yeah it's, it's it's a lot i mean think how clean the floor is at the end of that <laughs> um, so the school ones are really funny because like if i've ever done a school visit on like a friday or something it's always the after after lunch slot and it's like fish on a friday and peas and all this so yeah. <laughs> mushy pea smears along the track yeah, yeah. Oh. oh dear um so i think sort of getting into the kind of nitty gritty of it all and the the team element especially at an elite level you, you know like like the Paralympics I mean you're, you're talking about some some people like you said who maybe weren't sporty at all or hadn't really picked anything else up you know before um and maybe if they you know when they were able-bodied they they weren't really in teams and things like that obviously you were slightly different because you, your family background and, and yourself growing up you know loved sport but what were some of the sort of practical things that the coaches and the organizations were putting in place to allow this group of people that have just kind of like you sent an email in you know on an off chance and created a situation where you're representing your country 
with like you said 8000 people in 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 the in the you know in the stadium going mental how do you get from those points what what are the kind of keystone sort of points to to take that team to where it needed to be yeah i mean i guess the, the first thing is that we were learning on the job um where where we were lucky is that we were training more than any other nation out there but we we really were playing matches and we would get better like we would get better as tour- as tournaments went on just because we, it was the first time we were playing matches um but i kind of taking a step back in terms of yeah it was a, a group of us you know, probably say um half of us kind of had an interest in in sport generally whereas the other half were just physically the right specimens um, who loved the idea of going to a Paralympic Games. Um, no mean feat for a coach to have to unravel and kind of work with that. Um, and yeah, I think it was one of the biggest things, and it's probably the biggest thing that I've taken with me in the rest of my life, sort of working and stuff like that, is it was all about understanding different personalities. Um, there was no kind of one one rule for all because um, it just didn't work. Um, for, for the ones who are a bit sportier, we kind of got what a high-performance environment might be. For those that were kind of fresh into it, and it was a kind of uh, a teaching them the kind of the, the need to be competitive and what, and what competitive looks like, what's too much, what's too little. Um, so it was, it was quite interesting. And I think the other thing that kind of brought us a complexity into it is um, the, the types of disability in terms of kind of when they'd acquired it. So, so me, I was born with um, a, a, a wonky foot that I got chopped off at 14 years old. But um, there were other people who perhaps only lost their leg like six months before joining into the team. Wow. So for me, I can have a, a dark humour about the whole thing and kind of, take the mickey out of myself but for someone who's six months into it they're pretty raw in the yeah. whole thing and i think a lot of people went through kind of quite a deep journey and i think that kind of played out in the channel four coverage and everything around 2012 where some of the stories are just incredible mm. and i think there's like there's a couple of things you've hit on there that we've had from uh we've had from different sports coaches particularly i find it quite a lot uh in our role as, as teachers, uh, that kind of balance of personality, but the mindset thing, the, how, how to be competitive is, feels like a huge challenge when, when you are, when that isn't, uh, an, an embodied mentality, because I see it in performers a lot, the, it's the ones that have been doing it since they were three that apart from the fact that they've kind of absorbed all of the skills, so it's muscle memory, there's, there is a, a seriousness with which they approach what they're doing that it's really difficult to communicate to other people because it's quite an intimidating or quite a, a threatening seriousness that to be in a room as someone who is just doing it for fun next to someone who is taking themselves and the, and, and the event really seriously. Um, that in itself is almost a, a hindrance to teaching it. How, how, how did you get people on board? Yeah, I think that was, 
a really challenging part of it all because we're having to fast track everything. Um, so it was like we had a sports psychologist and, and, and she would come up with kind of things to, to try and kind of do it. And we, we'd regularly, when we had sort of training camps, can't be training all the time. So we'd have kind of break us into groups and we'd work in kind of groups in terms of roles in the team, seniority, then mix the whole thing up. And it was just to try and get those bonds with each other. And I think by forming those bonds with each other, I mean, you know, we were living in each other's pockets for such a long time. It kind of came together seemingly quite organically but like the competitive thing I, I don't even know um whether we did achieve it or not because mm. i think it's just people are just so different yeah in our group. I, I always remember that i i would be um in the in as you warm up for before a match you you go in pairs and you hit the ball at each other and you do all this kind of stuff and i was always religious i, I had to go with one other person and i knew i'd hit three of that shot four of that shot and i was just so single-minded on the whole thing and I'd look around, the other guys would be like balls everywhere and just kind of smiling <laughs> and all that. And he used to irritate the hell out of me. But yeah. like everyone has to get everyone has to get to the point where they're ready to play. And that's that's okay. You do your job and, and do your job first. You know what I mean? Yeah, we had I remember we had uh, uh, football coach Michael Moore on and he was talking about the process he goes through to learn what that is for everybody. Like if you're on the bus before the game and you need to be playing a video game, then you need to be playing a video game. Unless you lose, in which case maybe you need to rethink about what you're doing <laughs> on the bus. But if you're playing a video game and it helps you win, then let's learn from it, let's keep it. So he his whole, his whole beginning process was about finding these practices that work for the individuals and then finding a way to accommodate them all in that journey to the game. Yeah. We, um, like, especially in matches when it's kind of really like a timeout and you're sat all sat on the floor, you're all kind of huddled around and your coaches is telling you, like one thing we used to always just talk about was, um, take the message. Um, especially with people not from a sporting background, someone screaming, you get over there, you do this, whatever. Um, some, probably some choice language thrown in is, is quite intimidating. <laughs> so we used to try and have to break that down a little bit. And it was then having to do it after the event and then say, well, actually, this is all I'm saying is you've got to do this because that's happening or whatever it might be. So we used to kind of work on, on that quite a lot in terms of, uh, again, it's just all kind of teaching people to be in those situations. So are you saying that it's about the, like, like hear the what they're saying not necessarily the how they're saying it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, if, if I'm screaming, F this, move over here, do that, do that, what I'm actually saying is, can you just move over there, please? And, <laughs> and, and we'll be in a much better situation with it all. Where you, uh, where, where you described, you know, your warm-up process there, you know, that that is the kind of elite athlete who gets, um, is it 98, 98 caps? 98, yeah, Nin too sure. 98, I mean, it's not bad, is it, to be fair? Um, that is that kind of elite mentality that is almost my go-to in terms of a scale as to how serious somebody takes it. And, you know, we set our own standards, but it's really interesting that, like you said, you know, even at an elite level that you were at, you had to understand that people might just be messing about with the ball before a game, but... 
when it came to game time, they were, you know, they were locked in, you know, and did you, did you have a lot of sort of stumbling blocks there? Were there times when, you know, there were, you know, Mixed, mixed, mixed goals. Yeah, mixed, mixed, mixed goals, you know, difficult conversations because I, I imagine you, you, someone as potentially blinkered as you in terms of uh, in terms of success and wanting to be the best you can be. Did it take you a while to look outside of yourself and your performance and, yeah. and you know, see how the team were actually doing? Yeah, I, 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 kind of the best way of kind of framing this is it probably took me two years and certainly 18 months to look back on the Paralympics fondly. Um, really? Yeah. There were, there were people there who that everything in the goal was to get there. And God knows that was my goal as well. But once I was there, I was just so disappointed. I just, uh, nothing kind of like the experience was amazing, but I just, I wanted to, to win. I yeah. felt like I'd let people down and it just, stuck with me for ages now i kind of I, I kind of remember the good bits only if you know what i mean you kind of I do the bits in schools and show them and they're like that's amazing and, and everyone's so sort of supportive of it but i just had like this deep sense of shame after it like all my friends and family have come to watch me and we won one game which was which was great and that was an amazing experience but it just wasn't 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 what i wanted i think that's probably what drove me to an individual sport yeah. i kind of I wanted to take control of it. Um, but I mean, that's easier said than done. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of, it was incredible, but it was just deeply demanding of kind of your standards. And I think the, the biggest problem we had as a team is we didn't believe we could win. Um, and that's not necessarily winning goal, but just winning matches. I think we really, I think if that Leicester amazing kind of thing had happened, in yeah. 2011 um, and, and those kind of things because that kind of taught people to believe that things are possible just by by having momentum and all yeah. of that kind of stuff the underdog we just never yeah we just never never quite believed in ourselves and which is a shame yeah it, I, I bet and I, like, I'm feeling it now as you're saying it that sense of loving the people you're working with but that coming with a but come on guys and that may be being an impenetrable block, actually. The thing that you need in order to create that mindset of competitiveness has to be that end goal of winning. And if you haven't got that kind of in there and you end up, you end up being left with, you know, whatever happens, happens, which is a lovely yeah. feeling for me as a performer, as an artist. Uh, let's see what happens. But if someone gave me a you know, a dream gig on a movie or a, a stuck me on stage in the West End and I was being backed by a bunch of people who just thought it was wicked being there. Uh, yeah. I might be a little irritated. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd, I'd be certain that I couldn't give my best, not because I wasn't skilled enough, but because there'd be a part of me that didn't want to because I resented not being certain that we were all in it with that common goal. Yeah. Not saying that's everyone, but that'd be me. We we were, we were exactly that. The, the the number of people in the team, their goal was to get to the Paralympics, and it's an incredible goal and one that is incredible. And, and but for for others, the goal was beyond that, and it, you have to kind of you have to all buy into it. And I remember speaking to to Ashley, who was assistant coach, uh, uh, about it in the sort of the months leading up to it, and. 
we had sort of frank conversations about kind of what what success looks like and kind of how it might play out and but actually that's all kind of chipping away at um kind of what we think we thought might be possible we we were limiting ourselves and i think that's one of the things that's kind of i've taken kind of into my sort of job now that you kind of you make your plans and you and you work on on achieving those because if you if you if you always set it back from something dave brailsford said we're going to we're going to get um, a whole team to the end of the Tour de France as the big achievement rather than winning the Tour de France. Then everything plays out differently, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. How would you, you said your, your work at, at the moment, how, what are some of the big differences between sort of, you know, your day to day kind of working, working life and, and what you're up to now and sort of, uh, you know, being part of that team in, in, in 2012 and, and uh, representing GB in that sense. Yeah, so I was I was working at a time of 2012, and they gave me time off to train and stuff like that. But okay. I remember being roped into uh, doing like this presentation to. So I work in property, and it was to like some property networking group, and there was like 50 people there or something. And the whole talk, when I had to kind of kind of back of a sort of napkin write this thing up, was basically <laughs> about what what business can learn from sport. Uh, and it was actually fascinating to do it. And it was basically just going, you know, like in, in business, if something goes wrong, everyone runs around panicking and like, oh, how are we going to fix this? In sport, you, you go, all right, well, we prepared for this. And if this happens, this is what we'll do. And it was, those are the types of things that I've kind of taken with me in terms of kind of everything's about communication. Everything is about understanding the people around you. Um, you know, whether they're, carrot or sick or whatever it might be, you have to understand what gets the best out of people. Um, and kind of my role as, as captain of, of the volleyball team was was based around understanding, but also kind of the position I played, which was setter, which is the one who basically controls the tempo and all that. I call it the Dennis Burkamp role. Um, nice. <laughs> nice. Was, yeah. Um, it was, and so everything was about communication, but you've got to read does that guy want the ball in this situation? Uh, she, if he's kind of, has he got the fire? Does he want to be in that pressure situation against their best player at this key moment? But some people didn't, and that's okay. But there's kind of a lot of it was just kind of really understanding people, and I think that's just it's such a skill for for life, just mm-hmm. to be able to to talk to people, to to see and read how they're kind of managing things. I'm not a massively detailed person. I'm certainly more of a, uh, you do like personality tests and things like that. I'm more sort of uh, red, they call it, which is kind of goal orientated and yellow, which is leadership. And I sit right in in that side of an ideas person. And then the opposite of me, the people that feel, I feel hinder me are the people who are all about the detail or just want to have a nice time and be teamwork and all that kind of stuff. So it's quite interesting. And you need, you need in a business environment, probably in a sports team as well, you need a selection of all of those people to, to kind of make it work. I, I, I agree. And we've done it. We've done a couple of similar ones on previous episodes. But the thing that is missing, and uh, I can't remember who it was who brought it up first, but yes, you need all of those people, but we have to be looking at the same end point. We have, we have to know that what it is we're, 
working towards and have an agreement on that so that my non-leadership, my kind of getting down and grafting and just getting on with my thing, I know what I'm contributing towards. And I know what I'm heading for because otherwise it goes off in, dif- in, in different directions and dissipates. And actually, if you can channel the skills of all of these different personality types, uh, muster them towards that one point, uh, then you really are able to take advantage of the differences and know that you're going to get to that same point. But you have to, you have to have those, those weird conversations where we all sit down and go, okay, so what is it we're doing and why are we doing it? Yeah. And what colour are we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, and that's where we were lucky because of the kind of the budget we had as a volleyball team that we could have short-term goals, right? Three months' time, we're going to this tournament and here's what our training programme looks like. And medium, this is the big tournament coming up. And long-term, that was the Paralympics always. And I think we were able to kind of do that. And where the coaches were amazing for us is that they really kept training fresh, mm. um, constantly moving the training. It never, there would always be that point where like, oh, it's getting a bit samey. And then it's almost like they read our minds and everything would um, be different or there'd just be a fun session thrown in and it would then flip back around. And that was kind of thing I was sort of, teasing Ashley about is like he made us play in the dark once um, because he'd seen this <laughs> viral Cristiano Ronaldo video all about peripheral vision and feeling the ball and all this kind of stuff trying to make you into Jedis <laughs> yeah yeah and then he was like um, yeah putting sheets over um, the net so you can't see through but then also they used to bring in like these amazing they brought in this like Hungarian coach who lived in London and he'd like um, trademark this windmill shot, which was just like a bit of fun for a couple of sessions. That was like, it's a shot that you'd never really use. It's like a proper showboat thing. <laughs> but we just tried it because, you know what, it might be quite useful in the sitting volleyball. Um, we brought in, there's a lady who um, uh, went to the Olympics um, in beach volleyball, British, um, not being many of those. <laughs> and yeah. she came in and um, she was teaching us kind of um, defense techniques in beach volleyball and stuff. And it was just like, it was stuff like that that just kept everything moving and it, you never felt too bogged down. I think that's such a risk in in sports when you're just churning in the hours because yeah. we, we had to do that. We couldn't get away from that, but I had to kind of keep it all together. Yeah, Partic- particularly when you're working with, you know, effectively volunteers who, you know, who could quit if it wasn't fun. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. Not necessarily all great. To get paid their expenses, it's not a, it's not um, that much fun, is it? Um, just to be kind of there slogging their guts out, and we had so many volunteers and and people who just gave up so much time and kind of as athletes you don't really see it and then you look back on it and you're like god that's amazing isn't it it's a bit like how people look at the games makers and all those kind of things you know what amazing thing to do um but yeah from from our side of things we were just looking at it just going we we want to get to this point how do we get there um and we didn't it took away a bit of the thinking which is kind of what you want really yeah So we ask of everybody when they come on uh, the same question. Uh, We like to say that coaches make coaches, uh, that we as people who train and teach and uh, coach sport kind of learn how to do that from the people who coached us, uh, some of our best teachers. And we want to ask you, uh, is is there a coach out there who kind of 
inspired you in a way that that means you've taken what they taught you and it's now part of how you lead or how you coach others yeah I don't know it feels like a bit of a cop-out but I think in this kind of the world of kind of social media and you hear clips of different coaches and stuff like that I love American football coaches because I just love the way that they talk and actually American football players and I get a lot they get hit in the head a lot but dear God, they, they just speak <laughs> with such eloquence and such power all the time and I just think American football coaches just some of the things they come out with less so Belichick which is when he's grunting but all the others all the others it just really kind of it just inspires me I must say it, it really is that I think they, they just do amazing things with people from all kinds of backgrounds and they're, they're kind of generally kind of not from those backgrounds themselves. And I just love the way they just transcend everything and they, mm. they represent their players. And I think that's, that's part of what I, if, I, if ever I go into coaching, that's what I would want to do is to represent those coaches, uh, sorry, represent my players um, and really kind of understand what they're going through. And I think in a Paralympic world, that probably translates quite well Yeah. Um, to, to do that. So that's probably, I say, without naming any particular coaches, that's probably what I'd say. Um, but yeah, I think just I, I, there'll be things that will happen in my day-to-day life where I'll make a decision or I'll do something and it'll make me think back to a coach or, mm. or an experience I've been at and I go, oh, wow, that's sport and, uh, sport and real life kind of working in tandem. Absolutely. Well, Sean, as a, as a great example, we talked about on the last episode, we talked about an American football coach and his ability to bring the message of we need you to take COVID seriously when you're training and make it uh, accessible and make it fun. Yeah, there's just a little clip um, of uh, Sean McVay um, just talking to the players sort of uh, on uh, uh, Hard Knocks, uh, the the series uh, that's on at the moment with both of the LA teams um, and he's with the Rams. And just, yeah, he had his visor on, uh, you know, the big old visor. Not a lot of people are, are really comfortable to wear those at the moment and he just had his guys in front of him and it was just you know this is what we have to do I might look a little bit silly I've got my uh, windscreen wipers that go across it you know just to uh, take away the steam and he said this is what we're going to do he made a bit of a joke of it but he still instilled an importance around what they're going to have to do if they want football to you know continue for the season and just the whole approach um his demeanor it was just perfect you know it was just really perfect to see to see that and I was quite inspired by it as someone going into a school now having to speak to young people about how they need to go about things so definitely with you on the American football coach and there's something that I think I didn't appreciate until I started chatting to Sean about how those coaches work and it sounds like I've got a gut feeling you might agree with me Rob um with our British kind of snark and cynicism we are not particularly comfortable with those kind of short sharp positive messages the motivational messages the signs up on the wall the like we're (laughs) here to win the 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 kind of the slogany feeling messaging that kind of is infused in American training. And I think I've learned to love it because of Sean, the, the idea that these messages, once you get past this American-ness that yeah. for me was always <laughs> a little bit, a little bit kind of uh, American, <laughs> they, 
they sink in slowly but surely they just start to become culture and that that yeah. that becomes an interesting thing for me it's funny i've got an interesting story I, we played our last game at london 2012 and it was against china um, our final game and i came out with some kind of line along a, a kind of that american cheese and it was like something like oh um we've done all of these matches we've done it for the fans we've done it all this let's do this one for us let, let's be this the game nice. that we remember for the rest of our lives and deliver this line. It was like I was in Friday Night Lights or something. Could have put a soundtrack <laughs> behind it. Yeah, but everyone laughed. <laughs> oh, we were there. Oh, was in the, literally in, in the huddle on, on the court before the first point, the whistle was gone and his last words. And everyone just laughed. And it was like, oh, I love it. British versus American, right? <laughs> 100%. 100%. Uh, and, and yet, I've grown, I've grown fond of uh, Like, when we, sh- when we set up our American football podcast, we'll have to definitely get you on to talk Friday Night Lights yeah, and American coaches um, because the season's just started. Uh, and the other thing we ask uh, is... Uh, as we wrap things up, is there anything that you want to point people towards? So anyone listening, you think this is something they, they need to know about either coaching or just because you've got an album to sell of inspiration, <laughs> of inspirational quotes? No, I, I just kind of, just to keep plugging away at Paralympic sport, I mm. think it's an amazing, amazing thing that kind of, um, it shouldn't be a thing that comes up every four years. I think we have to keep banging the drum for it. Mm. And mine's not about the elite level and getting people in at that, but it's the difference it makes for, for that one kid in school who's a right. little bit more different than the next kid. Right. Um, and just it makes such a difference. I, I love it when I go into a school and there will always be a, a, a disabled kid there. It just always seems to be. Um, and whatever that disability is to make that child feel special and for everyone else in the room to suddenly go, God, he can do that better than I can do that because that's how Paralympic sport can be a leveler. Yeah. And it just makes, I think that it's, it's those kind of things that make it make a difference. And so, yeah, it's, it's at, at that school level. It's that, that thing where you just go, you've got one leg, I've got two legs, blonde hair, brown hair. It is, we are all different and you just get on with life and, and um, do your best. I love it. What a way to end the podcast. Uh, Rob, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Super fun chat and uh, just beautifully heartwarmingly inspiring there at the end. Uh, and I'll make sure I put some uh, uh, some links in the show notes. It's been a blast having you on. Uh, and we'll do all the not safe for podcast uh, Ashley Trodden <laughs> anecdotes off off the air. But uh, yeah, <laughs> cheer, cheer, cheers for coming on. We're super grateful. Brilliant. Thank you. Rob, thank you so, so much. And it just goes to show when you know fantastic people like, you know, like Ashley, who is, you know, connected to yourself and has worked with you um, and kind of bringing us all together in a in a little Teams podcast network is uh, is really, really good. And we're super privileged to have someone of of your kind of ilk on on our podcast. Honestly, it's, uh, it's, it's really fantastic. And as Mark said, super inspiring. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming on. No worries. Great chat there. He was super fun. 
Awesome. Yeah, really awesome. So, <laughs> so, so interesting just to see, as I said before, that kind of journey all the way through to, to getting 98 caps, um, being at the, you know, 2012 Paralympics. There's so little people that can actually talk on that experience. Yeah. Um, like, and it was such a huge thing culturally to have yeah. someone speak from the inside and be able to speak about it like in that surprising way that he did where like were you surprised when he said like how, how it was a painful memory for yeah afterwards he said for a long time it was a painful memory and i think you know i've just listened to uh another podcast high performance podcast um which is great um i'll stick and, a link in the, yeah uh, has, sim notes. has similar themes to, to to what we talk about um, and they're, you know, interviewing high performance athletes every week. Um, and they had Ben Ainsley um, on there, uh, the sailor. And, you know, he's he had so much sort of re regret about some stuff and mm. some real massive disappointments when you're talking about silver medals at Olympics, which other people would be, you know, patting themselves on the yeah. back with. And you're with, the second best at this in the world. Yeah. And it was and it felt that same way with Rob. It felt as though he wanted the team to be so successful and wanted them to have such an amazing 2012 Paralympics that when they didn't quite finish where they wanted to, he kind of held on to that for, it seems, yeah. quite quite a while. But now can reflect. Yeah, it did bring it back to that thing that we've had with a couple of people of how important it is to be really clear and specific on your shared goal, on your, as a team, what are we trying to do? What's, what's our end point or what is our uh, success criteria? Because like it sounded like a blast for everyone, but there was a clear difference between what some people were trying to achieve and what others weren't. And it sounds like that's underneath some of that resentment or some of, you know, the root of some of that pain that, that he was experiencing about the games. Um, and so interesting but not necessarily surprising to hear him move into a more individual event yeah exactly going into the skeleton was in you know like terrifying event yeah as well. like one terrifying uh two just completely different event um and i think it says a lot about him as a person that you know he's clearly very very headstrong clearly yeah. someone that wants to be reliant on himself um, and for his own performance. Yeah, that inner competitiveness it, yeah. doesn't matter if there's someone you're against, you're always going to be measuring against something. Yeah, against yourself, you know, a lot a lot of the time. Um, you know, so someone, again, who has really high standards for himself. And as I said, you know, anyone across any sports or in business, you know, longevity for me says a lot. Yes. You know, um, but longevity with success as well. And like, you don't get to 98 caps unless you have a really high standard for yourself. First then we'll get foremost. to 98 episodes. That's a really good point, isn't it? That's a great comparison. If we stop in like the end of this series, will we not be classed as successful? Well, I'm going to throw that directly to you. We've, we spoke a little bit about the success criteria of this podcast. Yeah. And, and, I, and, 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 it's slightly open-ended, but we have been setting ourselves little targets. Yeah, we have indeed. And I think that, you know, someone who's coming from a sporting background, you know, you know, sort of goals are really important to me, even if they are small. Um, but I think what you've been able to do in conversations that we've had is um, kind of also be kind to ourselves. Yeah. And, and know that the people that are listening 
are really enjoying the content the guests that we're getting on continue to be you know more awesome every week like, like who, who who would have imagined at the beginning of lockdown that like we'd be at this point having spoken to a paralympic coach and someone who's captained england 98 times exactly and like it's been as i said i've said it a few times but like a real privilege that we're getting to do this like on a weekly basis we're getting to speak to some really interesting successful um, people who are being really generous with their time as well and we're getting a lot from it and we hope that the audience are getting a lot from it but yeah no rob was superb i feel like there's probably a lot more we could have dug into absolutely you know, but you know we, we, we don't want to be three hours deep into these uh, podcast episodes I don't, I don't know if anyone out there realizes just how uh disheartening uh the the phrase would you like to be on my podcast sounds to some people oh there's a lot of us out there and we all want guests exactly <laughs> so yeah. we are so grateful for anyone who has agreed to come on um and we've got a couple more lined up that i'm massively excited about because uh one of them has been a big kind of game changer in both of our professional lives, which is great. And uh, we've got another guest lined up who's just up there in terms of uh, achievement and and where they're at in, in what they're doing. Uh, so I'm really excited for the next couple of apps. Honestly, you know, we've been saying it for a while now, but like we do have some uh, even more awesome guests coming up. Um, and you know we do appreciate that we have been reposting a couple of episodes but I mean they are awesome episodes that a lot of people didn't get a chance to maybe listen to first time around um, and I'm so glad that we've managed to get those back out again but um, yeah we're so glad to bring you fresh content yeah. uh, this week and in the next couple as well yeah and it's a slow slow countdown uh, back to Dr. Matt, Matt Fraser and uh yeah we, we might need to get the uh, dr fraser train going again we so took our foot off the gas on that one we did but we're coming back for you dr matt fraser so please please uh you know come on the podcast we'd love to have you on <laughs> uh, that's that's uh that's it for today thank you everyone for listening we uh you can always reach out to us via social media at no i podcast on twitter and instagram you can email us sean or mark at no i podcast dot show uh, you can check us out on LinkedIn. I put the LinkedIn, uh, our LinkedIn profile uh, in the last show notes. I'll put those in again. Uh, and uh, we would love to hear from you if you have someone you want to uh, have us talk to or if you want to come on yourselves. Uh, thanks, everyone. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, all that's left to say is goodbye from Sean. Goodbye, guys. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Must be like the Wolf Pack. Teamwork. Yes.